Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Welcome back, everyone, to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. First and foremost, a huge thank you to my mom for always starting us off with a big inspirational kick. I am so excited to be in Rockefeller Center today. And on the screen with me today, I have an amazing woman named Soon Haggerty. I've had the pleasure of getting to know her as I entered the car world as the principal auctioneer for Broad Arrow this past year. And I can't even tell you how many people said to me when I got into the car world, there is one woman you need to meet, and that is Soon Haggerty. So I can't wait to tell you everything about Soon and have her tell you her amazing confidence journey after a short word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence, everyone. Soon Haggerty is the SVP of brand at Haggerty and has played a lead role in transforming the company from a local specialty insurance company operating in a basement to a global publicly traded lifestyle brand for car lovers that joined the New York Stock Exchange in 2021 with a valuation of more than $3 billion. But there is so much more to this story. Soon, welcome to Claim Your Confidence. I'm so excited to be here. I think the same for me when we were looking at potential auctioneers and I said, we have got to get her, no question. And so I'm so glad that we've got to spend some time together. I am too. But let's start at the beginning because over the time that I've known you over this past year where I've run into you at the car auctions all over the country, I've gotten bits and pieces of your story and it's so compelling and so interesting. So start us off at the beginning soon. You grew up in Vietnam. Yeah, I was born in Saigon, Vietnam, and it's interesting. I never realized the impact of my childhood until actually it was in my adult years. So I was an immigrant. I was one of the boat people in the 70s. And so after the fall of uh, Saigon, my dad fought for the American side. And as you can imagine, we were not welcomed afterwards. And so he would have had to join what they would call a re-education camp. Technically, there's no education that actually happens. And so my parents said, you know what? Like, we need to build a better life. So they picked up in the middle of the night, like many of the boat people and left all their siblings, their parents. And we spent six months in a refugee camp in Indonesia, waiting for our papers. We were sponsored by my uncle who spent four years at $500 a month in savings to get us to the United States. So we came in late 1979 uh, when I was almost five and it was quite the journey. I was, you know, at a point where when you're five, you kind of start having memories and and visuals. And so I remember the journey not all the details, but it's like a weird memory that stays with me till this day. It's really built a lot of who I am. And do you remember in those early years who you were? Were you a child who was up for the adventure? Were you scared? I mean, what were the feelings that you're having at such a young age when you're going through something like that? Well, I remember being a very crowded household. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we have seven kids in the family. So I forgot that part. So here we are leaving Vietnam with six and a half kids in tow. My mom was seven months pregnant, Mm -hmm. came to the United States in late November. And my brother, the seventh sibling, was born in February. So it was a crowded house. And so, you know, it was like really interesting to grow up in a big house because you kind of build this resilience and this kind of thick skin, right? When you're literally like you're sharing three bedrooms, one bathroom with nine people, and you would like 
beat each other up. But then because you're so close to each other physically, you'd say, all right, what do you want to watch on TV tonight? Let's go get <laughs> you know, so You kind of have this like really thick skin. And sometimes that's really good. Yeah. And sometimes it's not good. And it's one of the interesting things that I didn't have insight till I was in college that not everybody like not everybody can take feedback as well as you. Like yeah. it can't just roll off the skin. So I had to learn to be a little bit more sensitive to people's thoughts and feelings as I um, recognized that, you know, growing up in a big family, you have super thick skin. And it must have been incredible to watch your parents go through that. And then as you get older and really understand what they risked to take you all in that situation, so many children, such a young age, and move you to a completely different country. Did they speak English when you arrived here? Great question. They didn't speak any English. I mean, we arrived with, you know, six and a half kids in tow, $300 in our pocket and no English. And so my dad, interesting, drove the newspaper truck that dropped off the newspaper bundles to newspaper boys and girls between like 12 to 5 a.m. Then he went home, kind of helped us get to school. And then at night he learned English for a couple of years. And so that's kind of our journey. My mom took care of seven kids with really no help. So it was really an interesting journey. And it's interesting, people have said risk, and I think that's true, but it was more of, it wasn't even a question. Yeah. You know, we had to do this. There was no risk in it in terms of how to make a better life. I'm just super proud of them. But what I've learned is really, I'm a forward mover. Yeah. Like they don't spend a lot of time talking about it. We've tried to ask and they talk a little bit about that. I think it's almost too hard for them to go backwards because they only had one path. So it's funny, my husband kind of makes fun of me because he says, I have like no nostalgia. <laughs> He'll get me like an anniversary card and then two days later, it'll be in the trash. He's like, does this mean nothing to you? I'm like, it did mean something to me two days ago. We're over this, you know? And so I think what makes you great is also your biggest weakness. Mm -hmm. So you've got to always be thoughtful of like that oscillation. So I think their experience has really built resilience, but this kind of always forward moving path. It's a great way to live, to really be looking forward and not being regretting things. You know, there are people who I feel like get caught in that cycle where they're constantly looking back. Well, when I did this or when I wanted to do this and this didn't happen, but if you're always on a path forward, it's a great thing because it's the only possibility ahead of you, right? Yeah, and I, and I love that saying. It's like your regrets aren't from the things you do, it's the things you don't do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned college, but you had arrived in Fresno, California, correct? With the whole yes, family. Yes. Tell me the path. Where did you get to college? Where did you go to get there? How did you know where to do that? I always find the story of immigrants who come here with so little creating this incredible American dream real time to be so compelling. So tell us everything. You know, what's interesting is I think because my parents worked, they both had to work to kind of keep us afloat is I have like, like a little bit of, I wouldn't say PTSD, but I don't remember the color and the details of things. It's like, I knew I had to fill out my college forms. I knew I had to figure out what to do. I mean, and, and my parents are lovely, amazing people, but there wasn't a lot of detail in my life where my parents could regurgitate. Like, remember when you did this, you know, mm -hmm. your parents fill in yeah. memories for you. I, I didn't really have that. All I knew was that I loved storytelling. Mm -hmm. I loved learning. So I had two paths. I either wanted to be in communications PR or I wanted to be on television to be a broadcaster. And so I studied communications and then I really loved 
people. And so I have a degree in psychology and I did some classes in criminology as well. So I just think people are fascinating. They're great. They're crazy. There's so many crazy (laughs) stories. So I just love dissecting how the human mind and soul works. And that all really comes down to storytelling at the end of the day, doesn't it? That's how you tell a story as you learn about people and then create that image for other people. You know, my first class was Psych 101 and I was just obsessed after that. Just so many experiments in class about like your personality and who you are. I was just, I, I really gravitated towards psychology. And so what did you do when you left? Did you already know that you wanted to be in communication so you were looking for something next step or how did that come to you? Yeah, I have this other kind of weird uh, thing too. I actually love live events and live sports. And so part of my internship when I went to Fresno State is I uh, interned for the Fresno Falcons, which is the hockey team there. And I loved halftime promotions. And so I would kind of started honing in on my communication and PR skills. I did that for a little bit. And I had this like, speaking of crazy, crazy dream that I wanted to handle PR for the Lakers. And so I literally put my stuff in a U-Haul. I had two friends. We moved to LA. I didn't have a job. And I had this like silly notion I was just going to come work for the Lakers. And then so I ran into an old friend who had worked for a Fox News as a sportscaster. And he said, you're nuts. <laughs> so much for that dream. Running, I know. This guy who's running PR for Lakers has been there forever. And, you know, there's only one way you're going to replace him. Either he drops dead or retires, and not, neither of them are probably going to happen. So I thought, oh, okay. But you know what I did do is I found a connection. I ended up working at a TV station for a year and a half, and I really enjoyed I'm being in the broadcast world. And I just, I was an assignment editor and a field producer. So again, storytelling, I was out chasing stories. And so what I would do is assign a cameraman and a reporter, and then I would go on the scene and kind of help produce some of those stories. So that was really fun. But I also wasn't sure whether I wanted to be in broadcast or I wanted to be more on the communication side. So I did a little bit of double duty. I worked at a PR agency happened to be an agency in the automotive luxury world, which I fell in love with the car world after that. And it's not so much that I'm a car person in the sense I know how to take a car apart and put it back together, but it was more the people. Yes. Lydia, you know, you now know this. (laughs) I'm getting to know this. People in the car world are fascinating, right? Yeah. They're entrepreneurs, they're creatives, they're doctors, they're attorneys, they're astronauts. They're like this amazing group of people who have this one common passion. So, you know, I kind of went from, you know, communications to really on the PR side, and it all comes back to storytelling and people. What brought you into the car world? What was your first role once you were there? You were representing these brands and you just sort of realized that this was a, a true passion for you too, this world, this car world. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I was really immersed. I I loved living in LA. One of my first clients was the Peterson Automotive Museum. Mm -hmm. Um, It's Bob and Margie Peterson. And he has a great story. He started Motor Trend and Hot Rod. And again, it was kind of this concept that it was a a self-made person, an entrepreneur, right? And so a lot of car people are entrepreneurs. And so I just realized that it's not really the medium in which you're in. It doesn't matter if you're selling, you know, fax machines or uh, TVs or the idea of magazines. It's just the idea that 
people are built a certain way. And I just wanted to get in the middle of that. And so I thought it was just serendipitous. It was a an agency that I just really enjoyed being with the people. And so it, and I was never able to get away from it. 20 years later, I'm still in the car world. <laughs> it is interesting. I've said to a lot of people since I started taking auctions for Broad Arrow that a lot of times I can see a lot of similarities between the art collecting world from my years at Christie's and the car collecting world because in the car world, people gather multiple times over the course of the year for different events. And so you end up seeing the same people either at the auctions or the rallies or the different things that take place. And I wonder, do you have any amazing stories that you can share from your time in the car world that would tell everyone who's listening right now a little bit more about this world that we're talking about? Because I know even for me, having only been an auctioneer within this world for one year, there are so many things that I can't even explain yet. I don't really understand them, but I know that everybody is completely obsessed with these amazing rallies that take place in Italy or through the for the, the hills of California. So tell us something incredible that you've seen during your time in the car world that you can share with us. There's been so many incredible stories. I think for me, it's just multiple stories of I found the car that I got married in, right? Oh, I love that. 15 years later, right? And they said, I hope that I'll always have my wife, but now at least I'll always have my car. (laughs) That's a bumper sticker, right? (laughs) It's a bumper store, a a bumper sticker. You know, I, I think it's, there's like so many fascinating stories like that where it all boils down to, what does this car represent about me? But it's also the people too. So I I think, you know, Trent, right? He told me this great story, Trent Abbott, who runs a lot of our high, high net worth clients. It was just recent. And he said, listen, I just met this guy and I've started to do certain rallies with him. And through the um, Hawaiian wildfires, I told him that my sister lived there, but she's struggling with her family because you know, they're in the travel industry and nobody's going there now because of what happened with Maui. And yeah. he said, you know what? You tell me what her Venmo is and I'm going to give her 10 grand today. Wow. And just, and it's like, that's what car people do. It's like that, like, that's what you said. It's this connection of car people. So there's a thousand stories, but I've never seen a story that's not great without some heart and soul. There's like this like heart and soul, and it's not just the machine. It's like, what does the machine mean and how does it connect to other people? So I think cars are about connection. One of the thing that you referenced at the beginning of this conversation was when you were looking at auctioneers that everybody thought it might be interesting to have a female auctioneer because there are no female auctioneers in the car world. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to have been a woman in this world that is mainly men for most of your career and what you personally and Haggerty is doing to incorporate women and to get them excited about this industry. Yeah, I still, you know, I think there's progress, but honestly, I think there's a lot more work to do. Yeah, I think I think in general, not just in the automotive world, I, I think in the business world, I think there's pros and cons to any gender, right? And I think especially in the automotive field, I think it's a challenge to be a woman in this automotive field. I think, you know, when you think about the history of the automobile, they're all stories about um, Henry Ford. They're all stories about men who've created this industry. So you've kind of got this this back channel that you have to be working with. I also think this kind of old philosophy of, you know, working in the garage with my father, it's mm-hmm. always a father-son story. So you kind of have to get rid of some of that like history. I think for me, it's a life lesson. It's is whether you're a man or a woman, you have to do the homework. 
So I always, you know, as a as aspiring leader, I always showed up. I always, I was never late. Mm -hmm. I did my homework. But then I think you have to be super observant because not all men are created equal, right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes I'd be in a room like Mr. Peterson, who started Peterson Publishing and Peterson Museum. He always was so kind to me, Lydia. He would say, soon, what do you think? And I'm a 25-year-old kid. This mm -hmm. is my first gig. And then you'd have other men where I, you know, in my 40s, they never give you the time of day. So I think it's not all men will act a certain way, but I think as a woman, you have to be prepared. You have to almost ultra prepare and you have to be a bit stoic about things. You don't overreact, don't underreact, just kind of really pay attention to the room. And I think each situation comes with a very different atmosphere. Yeah. You know, when I took my first auction in Monterey last year, which was last August, so I just took my second one in August, I remember before I got up there, I felt very similar to the way I used to feel when I was a charity auctioneer, when I first started taking charity auctions, because there weren't a lot of women in the charity auctioneering world. And so I knew that I was already getting on stage with people, not not that they had any preconceived notion of whether it would be good or bad, but I always felt like there was an expectation that it wouldn't live up to what they had seen. When in fact, what I knew was sometimes it just takes a couple of times of seeing someone do something differently to think, it's not good or bad. It's just different from what I know. And so I remember that first time getting up there, sort of calling my husband and being like, I have to be honest, I don't get nervous about things anymore, but this is a real, like these, these nerves are real. I am feeling this in my fingertips and in my toes. And even standing up on stage for the first couple of hours, I remember I have, I work with a reader named Alan who is fantastic and he reads all the details of the car, but we have a, a shared piece of paper between us for notes because we're both on mic for five straight hours. And I remember writing him a note somewhere between hour one and two. And I just said, is this going okay? <laughs> With a question mark. And he wrote back, it's fabulous. And I remember taking a, a real sigh of relief and a, a real huge breath at that moment and thinking, okay, so maybe this will work. Like maybe this won't just be like one and done, which it could very easily have been at that point. So I will say I've seen, I've seen it all up front and the car world has been incredibly welcoming and wonderful to me. So I thank you for that opportunity. I was there on your first one. I saw every inch of it and you know what? It was fabulous. And one thing I'll add is not just, you know, people didn't know what to expect. I think it's a good thing. There was curiosity. Yeah. There's curiosity about you. I think there's curiosity about a female au auctioneer. Yeah. And another thing I'll add on that story is when we're looking at the different potential auctioneers, it was men who said, I want Lydia because she's good. First of all, she's oh, good. Awesome. And she brings something different to the table. You were kind of our secret weapon. So I think that was like super cool when they're looking at it. So that's kind of goes back to what I'm saying. It depends on the man, depends on the industry. But I think there's curiosity is a good thing. And I think it's a pendulum switch until you get more female entrepreneurs or more female auctioneers, then you start to see a little bit of rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. You've always dabbled in creating philanthropic good. You created the Haggerty Drivers Foundation, which really helped to shape the future of car culture. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's really a foundation that's existed for several years and it's got the different iterations. It's really to ensure that we preserve the heritage of the automobile, but thinking about the future. And so it's a foundation that is built within our corporation. And it's been really fascinating because one of the things that we've done is for the first time, we put cars on the National Mall in DC in these beautiful jewel boxes. We generally do it for about two weeks in September and is 
amazing to see some of the responses. A lot of people who say like, I'm not even sure I'm a car fan, but these cars are amazing and their stories are amazing. So we do things like that where we bring education about the impact of the automobile all over the world, but mainly focusing on heritage, the future, and then making sure that the next generation can have access to this information and vehicles. Another cool thing that we do is called License to the Future. So I remember when I was in high school, driver's ed was included in my high school program, including the cost. And now it's not. You have to do it on your own. It's $400 a piece. And so that, that precludes some people may able to get their license for a while. So we said, okay, why don't we you know, we have something called the shop, which is um, our merchandise with our brand stuff on Haggerty, and a portion of the safe driving collection fuels license to the future. So we'll give away 200 licenses to the future for kids getting their license in high school. So it's a little bit, you know, preserving the past, but making sure that people really are able to enjoy the automobile for the future. And so when we walk outside of the automotive world and look at the other ways that you have your hands in so many things, I mean, it really is incredible to see your bio. One other thing that you did, and I love this one so much, a believer in doing good by doing well. You're the co-owner of The Good Bowl. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's actually really interesting. I, you know, when I moved from LA to Traverse City, (laughs) there was not a lot of ethnic diversity or cultural diversity in terms of food. And I said to my husband, it's like, I just want a bowl of pho, you know, hot noodle Vietnamese soup. And and so, and I've always kind of thought, okay, you know, I the restaurant world's interesting. I love hospitality. And so I kind of developed a business plan and it would be called Good Bowl. And um, I went to my attorney. I said, listen, I have this idea to build a restaurant here. And he showed him the business plan. I really liked it. He said, well, do you have a chef? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay, good catch. Good yeah. catch. <laughs> I'll and just so need a chef Yeah. He introduced me to a friend of his who is a chef and he's Vietnamese as well. And we had this shared story. His family are the boat people as well. And so we went to California. His family went to Paris. And so we started thinking around this concept. So our concept is we build this restaurant to bring some ethnic cultural diversity to northern Michigan but we all donate a dollar per bowl to charity as a way to thank the U.S. for taking us in as immigrants. It's amazing. And so we're five years old this year. We've raised or donated almost $175,000, so roughly thirty dollars to $40,000 a year. And we do other charity events. And it's a pretty easy concept. I have, I'm a believer in if you make it easy for people to give, they will. Yeah. Don't overcomplex it. Don't oversell it. So what we do is when, Lydia, if you came in the restaurant, you said, you know, I want a pho Saigon beef noodle soup. We'll say, where do you want your dollar to go to today? And so we'll give you three options. We'll give you a local option, a national option, and a global option. I'm a big believer. It's not just local. You have to think globally as yeah. well. I mean, we're all human beings. Like everything that's going on in the world is not relegated to one space. Right. And so you'll get um, an opportunity to pick your charity of choice. We rotate it every quarter. And how we get suggestions is the customers will will say, okay, what about Make-A-Wish? What about St. Jude's? What about this local? I'll pick the top two or three that are suggested. And then my employees actually get to vote on the final. Oh, that's amazing. So I get the community involved, the employees involved, and then every quarter we give out a check. That's incredible. 
that's an amazing amount of money to raise as well over five years. I mean, that's, you know, it's not huge dollars at first, but it builds over time. It's something I say to people all the time. Like everyone always thinks it's about the big hit, but it's actually about the small work done over time. And that's obviously a way to show that. You have two stepdaughters and your daughter, Ava. What are you looking to show them from your life? Like, what is your legacy for them? Well, I love the name of your podcast and your book because I think it's all about confidence. Yeah. I, I think so much identity, male and female, but prim- I would say more so female as stems from your how you view yourself. And I think a lot of it is around your confidence. So, and it was prior to us meeting, it's prior to your book. If you had asked me 10 years ago, what's the number one thing that you would focus on in yourself and others? And I would say confidence because confidence, if you have confidence, you you're, you have a better chance to make great decisions about who you surround yourself with and what you do. I think everything in life is, stems from lack of confidence or insecurity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's neither, like insecurity is not necessarily a bad thing because you could actually do a lot of positive things with insecurity. But I think in order to be rooted, you have to have a sense of confidence about yourself. So I would say confidence for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Because at the end of the day, if you don't believe in yourself, then who believes in you? You know, it's the person who looks the most confident, ultimately, who people look to to lead, which really is, if you think about it, the hardest thing, because if you don't feel confident and no one is choosing you to leave, it feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways. So a lot of times I'm like, you never you never underestimate like a big smile with your shoulders thrown back. That was certainly what I was employing my first time on a car auction stage. I will tell you that huge smile, shoulders gone back. Didn't matter what was happening. I, would, I you could not You could not have beaten that smile. I was just like, it's fine. Everything's good. Just watch what I'm doing and don't think about anything else. So I definitely believe that that's true. I said at the beginning of this podcast that you and your husband really built Haggerty from an insurance company to a lifestyle company. Can you tell us about that journey? There's so many entrepreneurs who listen to this podcast and I get so many amazing DMs afterwards asking questions about, you know, what are the brass tacks? What does it take? How did that vision occur? Yeah, I mean, Haggerty's also a great entrepreneur story. Um, Mikhail's parents, Louise and Frank Haggerty, started in the basement of their garage and, you know, will be 40 years next year. So it's 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 quite, it, you know, it's definitely not been an overnight success. It's taken years to build this, but it's this consistent drumbeat of, first of all, people. Mm-hmm. Everything in life is about who you surround yourself with. So I think this family concept of treating people like family and really creating a space for them to grow and thrive. I think that was paramount for Haggerty. And I think it still exists today, even as a public company. I think it's about like tapping into what problem are you trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And I think the problem we are trying to solve is how do we build a business in a way where we help people enjoy their passion and their passion is cars. We didn't invent the automobile, right? We didn't invent passion. What we did was we connected the pieces and you, it's really around building a brand, building a brand that people can surround themselves with. I mean, if you think about our primary revenue source, it's insurance. But I'm pretty sure you wouldn't interview me for about 40 minutes around just insurance. <laughs> You're probably wanting to talk about like, what does Haggerty stand for? And yeah. what Haggerty stands for is helping people enjoy the passion and surrounding people with great um, customer service and a great brand. So I, I think... I think it takes a lot to build an enduring brand and we're just, you know, partway there. I think somebody like a brand like um, Disney is so inspiring to me. A hundred years of just 
this culture. It's just amazing. So I'm a big study of enduring brands, but everything, every single thing I've learned, it's about people first. And that's Haggerty. Certainly. I've felt that, I mean, Broad Arrow was purchased, I think, nine months after I started working with them by Haggerty. And obviously we had crossed paths before that, but that's definitely always been the reputation that you've had, even the Broad Arrow team, and by extension from me coming in a couple times a year to take their auctions. You talked at the beginning about this idea of the future and always looking forward, and you started the Boundless Futures Foundation. So I would love to learn a little bit more about that because it really is all about financial support and leadership resources to aspiring female entrepreneurs. And I just went to something at the UN where it was the Women's Entrepreneurship Accelerator, where they were talking about the fact that there is a $1 trillion gap in entrepreneurship money for females. So tell us how the Boundless Futures Foundation is trying to solve this issue, what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting stat. I mean, another one that I found really enlightening is when you look at all venture capital, only 2% go to women. Yes. And yet nearly 50% of businesses are owned by women in the U.S. Yeah, staggering, really. Yeah, they're figuring out how to make it happen, right? They're either funding it themselves, which means they can't can't take as much risk. They Mm -hmm. can't grow as fast because they have this conservative cash pool in which they can pull from. So I think that puts them at a disadvantage that they can't borrow or be invested in. So they kind of have to do everything grassroots, which is not necessarily bad, but it's a longer path to success. It's a longer path to growth. So, you know, for me, I think if I could just give them a bit of that nudge, I think they can take a much further leap. And so like the the three pillars for us, for um, Balmas Futures Foundation is based on empower, embrace, and elevate. Empower is we give a individual up to $25,000, no strings attached grant for them to start their own business. Wow, that's The caveat is this business needs to be rooted in social enterprise. So if you want to start a business that helps solve a social issue, we're happy to be able to look at your business plan and be able to give you that grant. Okay, no strings attached. Second part of the foundation is this concept of embrace. I think one of the, the, you know, I've started three businesses And I have to tell you, I think it's one thing for capital. It's another questions. So, I mean, when I started my first agency, I didn't, I mean, basic questions. Do I start an LLC? Is it a S Corp? Like, you know, how do I, what's my HR policy? You know, all those things where, yes, you can look it up online. Yes, you can ask people. But to have a network of women who've done this before on speed dial. So that's what advisory circle is. I have four advisory circle members who've started their own business at a broad range of expertise that you can call and say um, to one of them, Jessica Sullivan, okay, Jessica, here's my business. What type of enterprise should I list it at? You know, so it's the, and then the last element of um, Boundless Futures is Elevate. So what we'll do is we'll also give grants to nonprofits that also help female entrepreneurs. So it's kind of a three-pronged approach to Boundless Futures. And how can someone find you if they're looking for a grant or if they're looking to get involved? Yeah. So, I mean, they can follow us on social media or boundlessfutures.org and they can, everything is outlined to what the criteria is. And it's a pretty easy um, grant process. Well, between your SVP of brand for Haggerty, your restaurant and your foundation, it seems like you have quite a lot going on. So I almost hate to ask this question, but I also know that if you have a if you have a busy woman, just she's probably the person who's probably doing 90 other things. So what comes <laughs> next for you soon? I think Ava is 11. So I want to 
figure out how I can really spend a little bit more time with her and to be able to carve out some time to really spend with her, but to think. I want to really think about how can I spend more time to create. I've, I've had a lot of life lessons and I'm running so fast, Lydia, that is there time for me to be more of a thought leader? So maybe there's time where I can kind of reshuffle my life where I can be involved in some of the businesses, but not running the day-to-day. So is it starting a blog? Is it, you know, creating content? I don't know. Maybe maybe there's a talk or a book in the future just so I can get all the things out of my mind to be able to think about how I can how I can give to others in a different way. I love it when people say they think about writing a book because my advice for people who want to write a book is write it. Just start <laughs> yeah. writing. Because people are always like, how do you start writing a book? And I was like, I opened up a Word document and just started writing and hoped for the best. And a lot of the things that I initially wrote never went anywhere. You know, my best friend's agent, I will never forget sending her. She's now my agent, but I sent her, you know, a story about a lemonade stand um, because I wanted to write a book on selling. And that's kind of where it all started for me was this lemonade stand. And she was like, nobody cares about this. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, when I go back and read it compared to the first chapter of my book, which is The Strike Method, which talks about being backstage at an auction, I'm like, yes, that was a much more compelling story than a lemonade stand. But I just felt like there were probably so many people who had done something small when they were little that they held on to as that sort of first thing. But but yeah, so I would say write the book and, you know, write as you go along, because honestly, and this is advice to anyone who wants to write a book, like write as you go along, because you can't believe how many things in your life as you're living it become things that you can look back on and realize that there was a lesson you learned it. You know, I, I look at the most powerful woman in the room as you. And I think back to the years that I wrote it when I had these very young children and I was doing two jobs and it was just nonstop day in and day out. And I look back on that person. I'm like, who was that person? (laughs) That is not the person I am now post COVID. But it's just such an interesting way to be able to capture the parts of your life. And I think especially for your daughter, for Ava, it would be very cool to see her mom, who's obviously doing so much for so many and be able to read through these these experiences for the rest of her life. So I am giving you the push you need. and I will be (laughs) expecting you to check back in. It was never my idea to say like, I'm going to write a book. But you know, when I the last couple of years through all these different changes, I've had a couple of people say like, you know, you have a really interesting natural story. Yeah. It needs to be told and needs to be told in a way where it's not about soon or, or my family. It's just about something that people can relate to, which is like, you know, it's not where you start in life. It's where you finish. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's a lot of great stories where they start with literally 300 bucks or nothing. And it's used this term a lot. And it's not that I disagree with it. They say it's about the journey, but it, to me, it's more than that. It's it's about the finish. It's like you can start from nothing and, and have a lot. And it's not about money. It's about accomplishment and success and confidence. So I'm, I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't know what the medium will be, but it's, it's, it's got me curious. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see where it ends up. Now, are you on social media? Is there another place where we can find you aside from the websites for the foundation and the restaurant? Yes, yes. I'm on Instagram at Soon Haggerty and then Boundless Futures as well. Well, I know that I will be following along and look forward to seeing you again at the Amelia next March for another auction. But I know that everybody else will look forward to following this journey because it is a remarkable one. And I know that there's more to come. I would love to pose one question that you were talking about when you were talking about Haggerty and just creating this company. When you said, what problem are you trying to solve? What entrepreneurial problem are you trying to solve when you create your business? So I hope that if you are working on something out there, you can DM me, you can DM soon. It sounds like she's as amenable to chatting and DM as I am with this question. What are you? What problem are you trying to solve 
in what you're doing, whether it be in your life or in your business. And soon you look. Oh, no, I, I, I think that's that, that's a great way to end this. It's, it's interesting because we started this podcast talking about the automotive industry and kind of the female role in it. And it's over the last couple of weeks, I've really been thinking about all the connective tissue. And there are some really positive things about the automotive industry being a female, and there's some challenging things. I remember, and this is very specific, after the, um, the Motorlux party that we threw at in, in uh, Montre, which is a super cool hangar party. It's kind of a higher end party to kick off this big car week. And my team produced it. And we ran into this guy who came up to Mikhail and I at a party, at a Porsche party and said, oh, I just went to your event at Motorlux. It was really, really great. And Mikhail said, oh, you know, thank you. My wife soon put it together. And he looked at me and then he looked at Mikhail and started talking to Mikhail about it. And I thought to myself, after 20 years, I'm still dealing with this. And so it kind of came full circle with Boundless Futures Foundation. It's like the problem I'm trying to solve is that women are just as capable of running businesses, running teams, being leaders, and whatever we can do to make sure that there's more examples of that, I think it will make the world a better place. The problem I'm trying to solve is to make sure that, you know, if you're a successful man or woman, that you get the recognition regardless of gender. And so I think... At Haggerty, I think at Boundless Futures, I think at the Good Bowl, I think it's about equality in the right way. And so I'm excited to be able to tap into that. Well, I could not have said it better myself. Thank you so much for your time soon. It has been such a pleasure to speak to you. I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I'm sure you have a hundred things to do today. I'd like to also thank Joe, my super producer, who helps everything run in the studio to Newsstand Studio, which is in One Rock Plaza. Please stop by if you're ever around on Wednesdays and Fridays. I'm usually in the studio. And to Rockefeller Center and Tishman's Fire for helping us create this incredible podcast. I'm Lydia Finette. This is Claim Your Confidence. I look forward to dropping this on a Tuesday and seeing you again for many Tuesdays to come.